Now, on this Invest Talk podcast, Justin Klein listens to your questions and provides unbiased answers. Invest Talk, over 31 million downloads and counting. I wanted to get your opinion on ticker symbol. I just really like it as a long term play. I uh, appreciate the show, appreciate all the knowledge. Thanks, guys. Your participation makes it unique. 888-99-SHARK. This podcast is produced by KPP Financial. Steve Peasley, President. KPP Financial. Independent thinking, shared success. And now today's podcast. Good afternoon, fellow investors, and welcome to Invest Talk. This is Monday. July 19th and as we move through summer it's smart to stay focused on what's happening in the market as we go into the back half of the year and there's various forces at play that are driving this recent market volatility and on today's program and podcast I'm going to do my best to help you unpack the data and see through the noise and the headlines okay and just as always I'm going to operate this hour with my mission statement, which is independent thinking and shared success. So whether I'm talking about a sector, an individual stock, a strategy, whatever it is, I'm here to present it with all without bias and using the facts as I see in front of me and 20 plus years of investment experience. Now, I'm Justin Klein. And of course, I encourage you to reach out and interact with us right now during our live stream program from 4 to 5 Pacific time. Or if you're listening after hours, no big, big deal at all. You can leave a message on our Anytime Invest Talk voice bank. Either way, that number is always 888 chart. That's 888-992-4278. So let's get right to our first listener question now. Hello, my name is Robert here in Millbury. I have a question about Mazda, M-Z-D-A-Y. I'm kind of curious about what your thoughts are on the long-term prospects of the company. I've been kind of watching it for a couple of years and I know that most cars are moving now to the electrical space, and I, I think Mazda is slowly moving there too. So, kind of just want to get your thoughts on it. Thank you so much. Bye bye. I know the first thing I always think about when I look at an auto company is that the auto industry historically is a very, very competitive, low margin business. It's not a great business, it's highly capital intensive, it's highly cyclical. Uh, there are very high fixed costs. You have, if you're producing here in the U.S., you have unions to deal with, all of those things. And then there are so many consumer choices. It's easy to jump from one brand to another. Uh, there, there are, and it's not just within uh, the car industry as a whole. It's every little subsector. There are different uh, leaders and, and competitors. And so it's just historically a very low margin business. And if you look at Mazda, there what is it? I think the fourth largest, is that what it is? I think it's the fourth largest Japanese automaker. So they're still good size, good scale, but this is the type of name I would only buy if I was thinking there's going to be a buyout. Why? Because historically, once again, it's very low margin, which means a low return on equity. 
over the last decade, the, there's a couple years where they hit 20% of return on equity, uh, a couple years where they hit double digits in the uh, 10 to 14 range, but most of the time they were in the single digits or negative when it came to return on investor capital and return on equity, and that's just not high enough for me. So. I, I just don't like it. Uh, I'm going to pass. Uh, I, this, if I'm going to invest in the space, I really need to be confident and really have a long-term vision for the company to create some sort of true economic advantage. And that's why I, I wouldn't own it. And I'm going to go with something like a, a Volkswagen that's focusing on EVs, that has a, a leading edge and, and showing a lot of progress there. And Mazda, I don't see any uh, major edge. And so I'm going to pass on MZDA Mazda Motor Corp. Now my focus point today concerns the story. The inflation threat may be boosted by changes in globalization, demographics, and e-commerce. Now for the past few decades, the Federal Reserve has succeeded in keeping inflation low, perhaps too low, and aided by globalization and various factors. So we're gonna touch on these various factors and what might be changing? What might be cha what might be staying the same? Okay, so we're gonna unpack that. Also, investor sentiment. Where is it at in relation to history? And what does that say about equity returns going forward? And then also inflation protected bonds. Tips, for example. How good are they at really hedging against inflation? Are they? Are they great inflation hedges? We're going to look at that sector and that asset class in particular, particular and unpack whether it's a smart move to add something like that to your overall portfolio. Now, those are things that are on my mind, but ultimately I want to talk about what's on your mind. So I encourage you to give me a call, 888-99-CHART, 888-992-4278. Let's check in on the market today. You had a decidedly risk-off day. The S&P was down over 2%, down 68 points. And a lot of people are going to say, oh, you know, we're in a everything's bad, everything's very negative uh, in, in the media. We, we hit the 50-day moving average, folks. That's it. We're still above the 50-day moving average. Technically, nothing really has changed. Now, if you look at some of the other indices, S, the, the Russell is down 32 points, about a percent and a half, so actually outperformed the, the large caps, uh, which was odd uh, for a day like this, but that was the case. And you had energy sell-off as, as OPEC had a deal on, on more production, but I think that is a... That is a sell-off that is without warrant, in my mind. There, the, the increase in production is modest, uh, and the demand drivers going forward for oil and energy continue to go up at a robust clip. And the headlines are going to say, this is all because of COVID, what's happening in the UK and the Delta variant, blah, 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 blah. But look at the numbers. The numbers do not tell you there's a lot to be worried about. Now, in, in, in Asia, uh, there are some numbers in certain countries to be worried about. But in areas where the vaccine has been rolled out to a significant degree, it really isn't anything to worry about. It, it, we're we're very, still very unlikely to have any shutdowns or major restrictions. Sure, there might be more masks going back on if you're indoors. But, but overall, 
it's very unlikely to change the economic trends that are happening today. Uh, and that means reopening more travel, more demand for uh, energy and goods and services. And so uh, I think this sell-off on COVID or uh, uh, the Delta variant is way, way overblown. So if you look at the actual numbers, so uh, don't, don't, don't be too quick to sell this based on some sort of narrative like that. Now we're heading into a quick break. Keith from San Diego, hang on, hang on. You will be next on Invest Talk at 888 chart The stock market is volatile. It's constantly changing. So how are you positioned? Is your portfolio properly balanced or are you taking unnecessary risks? You can get guidance anytime for free if you go to investtalk.com and take the brief Riskalyze quiz. The Investtalk phone lines are open and waiting for your questions. 888-99-CHART. Let's go talk to Keith. He's in San Diego. He wants to talk about health care coverage and retirement. How are you doing, Keith? Hello. Thanks. Thanks for taking the call, Justin. Of course. So this is outside the normal pattern and questions you normally get, but uh, I'm very near retirement and uh, wondering about what to do about health care. I'm only 54, so have a few years to go before Medicare or any kind of government coverage, but uh, just curious if you had any thoughts on uh, some options to cover that gap between now and 65. Well, uh, I, that's definitely out to, out of my uh, bailiwick. Uh, you know, I'm not a licensed uh, insurance person. Um, I would actually probably call back uh, during when Steve's uh, uh, hosting the show. He's been in what he was in the insurance industry for about 25 to 30 years. So he knows insurance a lot better than I do. Um, so he's a great person to ask. In fact, if you want to just send him an email, just head over to investtalk.com, click on contact Steve. That'll go directly to his email box and he'll give you a lot more color on that because uh, that's that's definitely a more unique situation. What are your needs? What are your healthcare needs? Uh, that varies for everybody. So he's a great person to ask. Send that message through investtalk.com. Thanks for the call, Keith. Let's go to Northern California and talk with Vip. He's looking at Tupperware brands. Do you own it or looking to buy it? Hey, Justin. Uh, thanks for taking my call. I actually just bought some today, and I noticed it's under the 50-day and the 200-day moving average, and the P.E. ratio is pretty low, and I was thinking it's a good value play. And I was wondering what your opinion on is on Tupperware. No, I don't think it's a good value play. You really have to look at uh, the... Okay, this is actually something, uh, a great lesson that I learned early on. It's about investing not through the rear view mirror, it's through the windshield, okay? And Tupperware is a name, and for everyone out there, they make food containers and preparation dishes for, uh, for cooking and serving. And during the pandemic, what were people doing a lot? They were cooking and serving in their home. And as things open up, their business is unlikely to have uh, the same trajectory as it has over the last 18 months or so. And you have to you have to refer back to how did the business, how was the business doing before the pandemic hit? And in 2019, they made $1.32. That was down from $4.08 in 18. $4.58 in 2017. So they were in a very negative trajectory going into the pandemic. And 
the last three quarters, they've had a nice boost. But this is not something that I would expect to be sustained. I think it's probably going to head back to a dollar and change of earnings. In that case, you're talking still uh, about a mid-teen uh, multiple and not growing and, in fact, shrinking like it was pre-pandemic. Uh, and, so, and technically, like you said, below the 50, below the 200, it's making lower highs and lower lows. This is not the type of name that you want to be getting excited about, okay? So I would not be buying Tupperware. If you own it, I'd be looking for an exit. Thanks for the call, VIP. 888-99-CHART, 888-992-4278. I encourage you to call in, ask your question over the next uh, 40 minutes or so. It's about how much time we have left. Now, when people invest the time to leave an Invest Talk podcast review on iTunes and include a question inside their review comment, we'd like to thank them for their courtesy by getting to their question quickly. So here's a question from a listener. Avis uh, Car, sh- should I sell? Jose from New York. I purchased Avis Car Rental back in March of 2020. I own 100 shares. Wondering if I should sell and take profits. I purchased Avis for $10. So let's take a look at Avis. And this is uh, uh, the same type of story here with um, with Tupperware is that Avis Budget Group, which is symbol of C-A-R for everyone else, they were hurting during the pandemic. Now it's come back dramatically, uh, but they still had a good business pre-pandemic. They grew their earnings modestly from 2018 to 2019 by three cents, but still made three dollars and sixty-eight cents in 2019, and Expect to make 4.58 this year, 5.28 next year. But I would expect, as over the long term, they're probably going to get back to somewhere in the neighborhood of 3.50, 4 dollars a share in earnings as uh, their supply comes back on. They buy more cars. You know, right now there's just a dearth of demand or dearth of supply of cars, and that's definitely benefiting uh, their margins and their earnings. Now this has come down here. Uh, getting down to the 200-day moving average, but actually still in relatively good technical position. Yes, it's pulled back over the last month or so. Uh, and so I actually like the technicals, very different than than Avis, okay? So this is what you have to look at. You have to understand the dynamics of the pandemic and post-pandemic. What will the business look like? Uh, and Avis is doing much, much better post-pandemic. Now, look long-term, their return on equity is, is pretty strong, but they do carry a lot of debt. It's a very, it's a very capital-intensive business, but they've muddled through this, which is good. Uh, so I'm going to give Avis a thumbs up, um, but it does have probably a little more downside. I would love to own it around 55 to 60 as opposed to 68 right now. Now, we have another caller after the break. So give me a call at 888-99-CHART. Invest Talk is always made better when our listeners contribute their questions. So tell your friends and family members they can interact in real time with Steve Peasley and Justin Klein during the Invest Talk live stream program between 4 and 5 p.m. Pacific Time. Or they can leave their questions anytime 24 7 in the Invest Talk voice bank. Remember, for live or recorded questions, the number never changes. 
Now let's continue with some listener questions. These were placed alongside our podcast reviews that people left at iTunes. Stephen Justin, if you get time, it would be curious of I would be curious of your thoughts on the stock AGCO. Do you like this stock for a long play? And if so, what's a good int- target entry? Thanks again for all that you guys do. That was from who from H O O F R O M. Interesting name, cool name. Uh, let's look at AGCO. This would be ADCO Corp. They manufacture manufacture agri- agricultural tractors, self-propelled sprayers, combines for the agricultural industry. So this is uh, a name a lot like John Deere, where when ag prices are going up, uh, farmers are doing well. They're they're making a lot of money, and they have a lot of money to go spend on equipment new tractors and things like that. They probably, uh, maybe in lean times, they, they didn't want to spend the money and they probably needed new equipment and uh, pent-up demand is suddenly released and they suddenly earn a lot of money. 2019, they made $4.44. Next year, they're supposed to make $9.71. So this is going to be a big play on the trajectory of agricultural agriculture prices and if you look at for example the DBA this is a, a good proxy for the agricultural industry and what prices are doing it spans a lot of sectors but in general DBA still is strong it's still even after today's sell-off still above the 100-day moving average in an uptrend still doing just fine now this yields about 0.7 percent and I want to look at longer term what the what the profitability metrics are, what does return on equity look like, what type of leverage they typically employ, uh, do they have a lot of debt, do they have a little debt, that's what uh, I like to look at. Now, over the last decade, I would say on average, the return on equity in the low teens, sometimes in the high teens, sometimes in the high single digits, but uh, averaging in the, in the low teens, which is pretty solid there. Well, not a lot of debt, not a lot of uh, financial leverage, consistent positive free cash flow every single year for the past decade. They've had pr- positive free cash flow. I like that. And trailing 12 months, you're talking about $744 million in free cash flow on a $9, million, or $9 billion market cap. And if you look at the chart, the chart looks like it's pulled back and it hit the 200-day moving average today. Good support. So... I'm going to give this name a thumbs up because I think agricultural prices are going to stay relatively robust, Uh, but know that this is very predicated on that. If you see ag prices go down uh, to maybe pre-pandemic levels, you, uh, you get some sort of change in the tide, it will change the tide for AGCO and a lot of the ag equipment makers as well. Okay, now let's go to our next question from Easy Money. My question is, for the podcast is, as someone who is young and has only been working for three years, I was wondering if I should roll over my 401k with my current employer into a Roth IRA and continue to put my contributions into my IRA account going forward. Now, the first thing is, unless you leave your employer, you're very unlikely to be able to roll that 401k over. Now, you're young, and oftentimes when you're young, you, you switch employers regularly, so you probably will have that opportunity. And, and anybody that does have that opportunity, when you switch employers or if your employer changes their provider, that happens sometimes. You know, there's uh, your provider's T-Row price, and they switch to Fidelity or some other uh, provider, and they just put your money into the new 401k. Uh-uh. 
don't let don't let them do that. Roll that over into an IRA. Don't let them move that into that new 401k. You want to be able to unlock it, get it into an IRA whenever you can. So look for that opportunity, and you should probably do that. You said you're young. You're probably in a low tax bracket. You probably want to get that into a Roth IRA. Now, just because you're contributing to your 401k does not mean you cannot contribute to your Roth IRA as well. You can do that. You can have money going into your regular regular 401k, and still contribute your max $6,000 a year into your Roth IRA as well. And I would encourage you to do that. You're young, sounds like you're only working for three years, and therefore putting and maxing out your Roth IRA is a great choice, and that's the way I would do it. So fantastic question, and thank you for both of you, Easy Money and Who From, for putting a review over there on iTunes. We really appreciate that. It raises our profile and helps the community at large. We get more great questions. The more listeners we have, the more great questions we get for everyone to learn from. Now, in the next Invest Talk, a story that asks this question. Could the Robinhood IPO valuation really be worth $35 billion? Now, the stock trading app will attempt to sell its shares at a range of $38 to $42 per share, according to the updated prospectus. Robinhood is looking to sell 55 million shares at that range to raise as much as $2.3 billion. That story tomorrow, Steve will unpack for you. But for now, I'm Justin Klein. I'm ready to take your questions live at 888-99-CHART. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It is official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers. Whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. At this point, I think almost everyone has heard how generative AI promises to bring us to the next industrial revolution. AI is already shaping society with an impact on daily life that echoes the transformative significance of electricity or the internet. As we take steps to embrace the potential of generative AI, we need to remain vigilant with regard to its exploitability. This is where HackerOne comes in. HackerOne's AI Red Team addresses the novel challenges of AI safety and security for businesses that are launching new AI deployments. The HackerOne approach involves targeted offensive testing by harnessing the collective skills of ethical hackers who are proficient in AI and prompt hacking. In short, AI Red Teaming is the practice of stress testing AI models and deployments to make sure they can't be tricked into providing information beyond their intended use, and that security flaws can't be exploited to access confidential data or systems. 
HackerOne seamlessly integrates with your existing tools to enhance communication and collaboration across development, security, and IT teams. So, stay ahead of the game in the battle against cyber threats with HackerOne's Attack Resistance Platform. Learn more at HackerOne.com. That's H-A-C-K-E-R-O-N-E.com. HackerOne.com. It's an Invest Talk Monday. Justin Klein is here taking your questions live. How is your portfolio doing? Are you prepared for continuing volatility? You've got questions. Call Invest Talk. 888 99Chart. 888 99Chart. 8899242278. Now let's pivot to our focus point today, which is about. Inflation and the factors that may be changing the deflationary environment that, or I would say disinflationary environment that we've had for the past few decades. And uh, even though the Federal Reserve has, some will say, kept inflation low, but uh, basically things like globalization and demographics and the rise of e-commerce, that has been preventing the Fed and other central banks from driving inflation higher. And this has, these things have played a significant role in the low inflationary environment over the last few decades, but that may be fading. And there's a few reasons for that. Now, the first is globalization. And I don't know if you know this, but global trade has not gotten back to its 2008 level as a percentage of G global GDP. Now, global trade more than doubled from 27% of world GDP in 1970 to 60% in 2008, and we haven't gotten back there since. Falling trade barriers and investment in global supply chains and infrastructure certainly helped that. And this was aided by things like cheap labor, in China, for example, that unlocked a lot of cheap labor, uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall, for example, and China's shift towards the market economy in the 80s and 90s. And that doubled the global workforce that could be integrated into the economy. And so that was the main driver of prices falling so dramatically. In fact, core good prices Stripped, uh, which stripped out volatile energy and food prices, rose just 18% between 1990 and 2019, almost three decades. While prices for core services, those things mainly produced here in the U.S., went up 147%. So you can see how dramatic globalization was for the disinflationary environment and the fall in in goods, not services, but goods. So the U.S., we were importing disinflation or even deflation from around the world. And this has brought on anti-globalization efforts and increased protectionism, and you've seen that with U.S. tariffs. For example, U.S.-China trade war in recent years has pushed the average U.S. tariff on imports from China to exceed 19%, six times as much as it was just a few decades before. For example, laundry equipment fell 5.8% between 2012 and 2017, and then 
President Trump implemented the tariffs and the price just shot up 12%. China had China solar panel prices rose 60% in uh, sorry, their share of global solar panels rose six to 60 percent by 2011 because basically the government of China supported it. But then U.S. put tariffs on it in 2018 and the rate of price decline flattened and the uptake of solar slowed down. And so you can see the impact of these tariffs and this is likely going to be a continue change. Not only that, but the vulnerabilities of the complex, really broad supply chains from around the world for essential goods like semiconductors, medical supplies, for example, these are all likely to be onshored. And this is a concerted effort by the government, which means higher prices for these things, but more secure supply chains. We've seen that here with what's happening with cars and computers, the lack of semiconductors creating a lot of this inflation. Then there's demographics. And this is a lot of large economies, but mainly China and the U.S. We both have problems with an aging population. For example, most baby boomers now are now retired, and 1.5 million of them retired during the pandemic. And this is going to put a, sh uh, a crimp on the labor force, not only here, but in China as well with an aging population. So those are the three main factors. Demographics, supply chains bringing, uh, being brought on shore or more localized, and then you have the tariffs. Uh, and that is also going to bring uh, less trade and not a complete reversal of globalization, but I think a definite slowdown in that trend. So these things are going to drive inflation for the longer term. doesn't mean it's going to be every single quarter, every single month, high inflation. Uh, these things are likely to be fits and starts. Surges, flattening off, and then surge again once you have different drivers that will push inflation higher. Now, this is Invest Talk. Stephen, I thank you for helping us achieve more than 33 million downloads. So let's go to another caller question from 888.99 chart. Hey, Justin and Steve. My name is Alex, and I'm calling from Virginia. I just wanted some advice for you guys. I own a stock SE, which is C Limited, a company based out of uh, Singapore. It has done really, really good for me. My top position uh, got an average base of around 180 or so. So I just wanted to see how I should uh, handle this with this winter and stuff. I, I love the company and everything, but just in terms of managing it, uh, I would like to add more to it, ideally, if it ever went back around my cost basis. But should I add more? Should I trim? Should I just hold? And just uh, your opinions on the company itself. Thank you so much. I love the show, and we'll listen on the podcast. Uh, have a good all right, looking at C Limited, and this is a Singapore-based company, like you said, and it's an internet company. It operates three segments, digital entertainment, e-commerce, and digital financial services, and it makes most of its revenue from digital entertainment, and they have PC games, mobile games, eSports, uh, social uh, media, it looks like, so they have... They have a, a broad set of, of services, uh, and they're growing dramatically, like you said. If you look at their revenue up 147% year over year. Now, 
on earnings per share basis, they're losing money. But if you look at their free cash flow and their cash flow numbers, they're going up dramatically. It was negative in 2018 and basically flat in 2019. But in 2020, free cash flow is $200 million. Operating cash flow is $556 million. And trailing 12 months, free cash flow is up to $580 million. And we almost hit they almost hit a billion dollars in free ca- in operating cash flow. And so that's what you're seeing here is a company that's growing nicely. Uh, the problem is it's now worth $139 billion. So even if you go by operating cash flow, which would be aggressive, you're still talking about a very, very high multiple. They're issuing a lot of shares from 206 million shares outstanding in 2017 to 490 million shares currently. So over double, about 150% increase there. Uh, I don't like that. And so that's why I would be trimming at these levels. It's gone sideways here. Basically since February, it's trading at very high multiples and I would be using a stop of the 200 day moving average. Right now that's at about $224 a share, but I would use it to right size it within your portfolio. Try to get it down to 3% or so of your overall uh, portfolio and then keep that tight stop from there. Now let's make a double play. Two listener questions in a row from our anytime listener line. It's open 24 seven. So you can call at 888-99-CHART. Yes, Steve and Justin. I'm looking for an entry point on BWA. Thank you. Have a great day. All right. Looking at Borg Warner. This is one of the largest auto parts supply companies in the world, mainly to OEM manufacturer manufacturers. They make turbocharges turbochargers, excuse me, e-boosters, e-turbos, timing systems, emission systems. Uh, powertrain sensors, all types of things that go into uh, various cars. And it's a large company. Market cap is about 10, almost $11 billion. Now it has come down here. It also hit the 200-day moving average today, which is typically good support. Earnings this year expect to be $4.18, $5.03 next year. This is one of those names that I would actually think is going to do better as time goes on, as we see here with the lack of supply of new and existing cars. That is going to probably sustain for a little while. That underproduction is going to need to be made up by overproduction in the future. And so Borg Warner is right in the heart of that. And the fact that they supply, it looks like, to the electric vehicle market as well, that's a strong growth driver. And the semiconductor issue is going to work itself out over the longer term. And that's probably holding back some of Borg Warner's sales of new production. So uh, I like this. Uh, and if you look longer term you, term, you look at the return on equity, that typically uh, ranges in the mid to high teens, sometimes goes up into the 20% range. But overall, it's very profitable, has solid free cash flow, and pays a decent dividend that is absolutely sustainable. 1.5% current dividend yield, but their payout ratio is only 34%. Cash dividend payout ratio is only 21%. And uh, their dividend has been flat over the past couple of years. Likely means that they're probably going to increase it relatively soon. Trading an enterprise value to EBIT of only eight. Uh, I'm going to say I like this and it's at the 200 day moving average. So this is pretty good support here as well. That was Borg Warner. BWA is the symbol. 
Now, if 2021 feels like it's moving fast for you, well, it's probably because it is. You're not alone. Summer is well underway, and we're now into the third week of the third quarter, and we're starting to see some volatility. So the big question is, can you handle it? How did your portfolio handle it in these circumstances? And if you need help, you want a second opinion, you want some professional eyes on it, reach out to us. Give us a call. Send us a message through investtalk.com. Set up a portfolio review. It's free. We can do it over the phone or go to meetings. It's really up to you. You send us your details of your portfolio. We'll send you full reports back. What is your risk level? What would happen if an 08 type of uh, recession or bear market happened? What would that portfolio perform like? What if you had a booming bull market? How well would it do that? What if interest rates move up a whole 1%? What would that impact be on your overall portfolio? Those are the things, those are the reports that we send. Are you overweight certain sectors? Are you underweight? What type of risk are you taking? How should you adjust your bond allocation, your, your, your equity allocation? These are the things that we discuss and you have to be thinking about. And so if you want to do that for free, take 10, 15, 20 minutes. It usually is a half hour, but it's up to you however long you want to talk. We can do that. Reach out to myself or Steve, like I said, through investtalk.com. No obligation. We just love to help you in any way we can. Next up, we have a question about shorting. That's in one minute on Invest Talk. Invest Talk is always made better when our listeners contribute their questions. Hi, guys. Lee from North Carolina here. I had a question about Stitch Fix, ticker SFIX. So tell your friends and family members they can interact in real time with Steve Peasley and Justin Klein during the Invest Talk live stream program between 4 and 5 p.m. Pacific time. Hey, Justin, Steve. This is Phil in Washington, D.C. Love you guys. I've learned so much. Or they can leave their questions anytime, 24 7, in the Invest Talk voice bank. Look forward to hearing your answers on the podcast. Thanks. Remember, for live or recorded questions, the number never changes. 888-99-CHART. Hey, quick question. What happens if you're short a stock, like, like I buy a put for a year and a half out, and stock goes bankrupt? Is that obviously really good for a put, or because it goes bankrupt, would I be screwed? So I'm just wondering. Uh, thank you, guys. Bye-bye. No, that's the dream scenario. <laughs> you Remember, a put is if you own a put, you bought a put on a position, you have a strike price. That means you can go and put it to whoever is the seller of that at that particular price. And you can sell it to them at that price. And so if a company goes bankrupt, typically the, pr the value of that equity is zero or next to zero. And so if you have a put at, say, $10 a share, you can go sell it for 10 and you go buy it back for next to nothing or vice versa. You buy it for you know pennies and you sell it for $10 a share. That's what makes, that's, that's, that's the best, of, best world you could live in if you own the put, the company goes bankrupt and the equity is worth nothing and now you get to sell it at a much higher price. Simple question, hopefully that was a simple answer. Thanks for the call. Now let's touch quickly on tips. This is something I want to go over here. And this goes into really understanding terminology and methodologies and regulation sometimes. And there are a lot of mutual funds and ETFs right now 
in the tips market, the Treasury Inflation Protected Securities market, that are showing that they yield 8% or, or more. In a bond market where even high-grade corporates are, use, are, are yielding typically 3 or 4%. And this, this sector took in $36.8 billion in new money in the first half of this year, a record for any six-month period since TIPS funds were born in the late 90s. Now, what they do, they're purported to fight inflation, but they're actually inflating their own reported yields. Now, this week, every single TIPS security was trading at a negative yield to maturity before inflation. But a lot of the ETFs, mutual funds, are looking like they pay 6 7 or 8%. Now, what are TIPS? Well, I, we're going to have to go to a break. I'm going I'm to pick this up after the break because it's really important to understand this. Because if you just take things on face value and don't understand how things are calculated, you could be not getting what you think you're paying for. And this is a perfect example of that. And so we're going to unpack the tip story after this final break. But I also have time for your call if you want to make it. This is Invest Talk. I'm Justin Klein, and we have one goal each and every weekday, and that's to help you achieve your own version of financial freedom. And our work continues after this final break. So if you want to get that last question in, you can do it right now at 888 chart You are listening to Invest Talk. Every Friday on the program and the podcast, Steve Peasley shares highlights from the newest edition of the KPP Premium Newsletter. Listen Fridays to Invest Talk. And now, Steve and Justin welcome your calls and questions. 888-99-CHART. Now, before the break, I was touching on tips and how a lot of them are showing very high yields and what it's called is an SEC yield and how it is calculated is very very important now tips for example they pay out based on a base rate as well as the CPI index and based on the CPI index uh, uh, an amount that is uh, above the the baseline and when you measure inflation they annualize the recent inflation numbers. So the principal value of each of these securities go up by the measure of inflation. And so does its interest payment. Now when inflation declines, the tips value and interest fall with it. So it's a lot based on what's happening with inflation measures. Now if you look at the CPI numbers, in May it was up 0.8%, in June it was up 0.9%, and when you start to annualize those numbers, that's how you get to 7 8%. For example, the Fidelity Inflation Protection Bond, Protected Bond Index, SEC yield, 7.1%. The PIMCO Real Return Inflation Fund, 8.2%. The iShares Tips Bond ETF, 8.4%. Now, the problem with that is that you're taking a very small sample size and then extrapolating that for an entire year when that's very unlikely to be repeated. So make sure 
that when you are investing in these funds or any type of fund, you understand how the purported yield is calculated. Is that sustainable? Okay, and this goes back to really understanding your investments, not looking at one particular number and knowing if it does pay some sort of yield, how is it getting that and is that number sustainable? Now let's pivot back to the Invest Talk Voice Bank for a question that came in earlier from a listener in New York. Hi, Stephen, Justin, Paul from New York here. Thank you for the podcast. I listen every day. I was wondering if you can tell me what you think about the ticker symbol VFS Village Farms is on a play on federal legalization of cannabis. Just looking to know what you guys think. Thanks. Oh, this is a Canadian company that produces and distributes greenhouse grown tomatoes, bell peppers, and cucumbers, and they have, it looks like, gotten into uh, the cannabis space as well. The problem is, is that it's Canadian. So how much of their business is going to leak over here into the U.S.? And I'm not sold on that, to be honest with you. Because, for a couple reasons. First off, I don't like the growers. To me, if I'm going to invest in the space, I want some sort of value add. And just own, owning means a production of essentially a commodity and an easily grown commodity. It's a weed. I want some added value beyond just the, the raw commodity. I want distribution. I want some expertise around the laws and bylaws that go along with selling and distributing cannabis and its offshoots. I don't want to just own some means of production because historically those are very low margin, very competitive, easily entered industries. And that's why they're low margin. And so that's why a village farms international is just not a name that I'm going to get worked up about or excited about. So uh, I'm going to pass on it and look for the multi-state operators that once again have the distribution, have a brand maybe or multiple brands that have loyalty already within the space and have good distribution. I think that's going to be the most important. If you can sell in a lot of different locations and uh, legally and within the laws and bylaws, you're going to have a leg up on the competition because those ins and outs are difficult and I would focus on domestic companies, not Canadian companies. Now let's put it back. Oh, never mind. I think that completes it. I'm Justin Klein. Steve Peasley and I thank you for listening and we encourage you to tell your friends and family about our free podcast downloads. So get your free downloads anytime at iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. And as always, investtalk.com. And be sure to rate and review. And ratings raise our profile and help spread the word and get more great questions from you, our listeners. And you can leave a brief question with your rating and we will prioritize your answer. You can browse by topic too if you want. You can go by 401k, treasury yields, interest rates, real estate, whatever is on your mind, you can search for those over at investtalk.com. Independent thinking, shared success. This is Invest Talk. Good night. Because of the nature of the interactive dialogue inherent in the format of this program, it's important for the listener to understand that not all comments made will apply to them specifically. 
Nothing said shall be taken to be investment advice or shall statements on this program be considered an offer to buy or sell securities. Such advice is rendered solely on an individual basis and at times will require that the investor review a prospectus before investing. InvestTalk is a copyrighted program of Klein Pavlis Peasley Financial, a registered investment advisor, which retains all rights. For more information regarding KPP's investment advisors, call 1-800-557-5461. Steve Peasley is President and Justin Klein Chief Executive Officer of Klein Pavlis Peasley Financial. They thank